Hey everyone, and welcome to the Pivot by Maltego. And today's special guest is Gisela Perez de Acha. Uh, so, Gisela, welcome to the show today. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's it's a pleasure to have you. Um, <clears throat> how how are you? How's uh, what's uh, what's happening uh, in your life these days? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Um, I am in San Francisco. It's a little rainy, which is always good news after all the fires. And I have been fact checking seven hundred thousand and seventy three rows of flight tracking data for a story that we're about to publish. So that has been the bulk of my time lately um, with my team of students. And I can tell you more about that in a bit, but I'm very much in a flight tracking mode at the moment. That sounds exciting, but uh, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the inner cyborg. Oh, I love that. Very provocative question. Um, so, well, my name is Gisela. I am 33 years old. Uh, I currently teach uh, at um, UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. I teach open source investigations and I work as an investigative reporter as well. Um, I used to be a lawyer. I am uh, a cybersecurity lawyer, so a data privacy lawyer. And you know, when, when we were, you and I were talking uh, backstage, offstage, um, I think one of the things, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you, how did you get here? Like, how did you, how does a 33-year-old Mexican woman get to change careers from law to journalism and investigative reporting and then teach and manage large teams of students for investigative reporting and, and OSINT and open source? Um, and I think I was telling you that one of the moments that truly, really changed me was reading Donna Haraway's book. Um, for those who don't know her, uh, she is a feminist who wrote in the 80s. She's actually living here in Santa Cruz. Um, but she wrote a Cyborg Manifesto in the 80s. Um, and that book changed my life. And that book changed my way of seeing the world, seeing myself and seeing the internet as a lot of feminism often does, you know, how the personal is political and vice versa. But essentially the inner cyborg, I believe that all of us are cyborgs. We are all data in the end. Uh, you know, all our thoughts, all our, um, our wants, our needs, our fears, uh, our cravings, um, I mean, our work. Um, I always joke with my students that I'm always holding my phone in my hand and I go to sleep next to it. And if I wake up, if I don't have the phone in my hand, um, I feel like I've lost an arm or something. Uh, but I really like this approach to technology because it also, Donna Haraway uses the metaphor of a cyborg as a recipient for techno-topianism in a very different way that tech bros from Silicon Valley, not move fast and break things, but rather... Let's think about the cyborg as a metaphor, a poetic metaphor through which we can push technological boundaries um, and through which we can think of technology as being part of ourselves and apply some of the very basic principles of feminism to technology, like 
radical consent, for example, right? And our data privacy or uh, autonomy, which is one of my favorite when coming to technology and um, infrastructure in general. Um, so I think starting from there, that's what really has marked, that book has really, and that theoretical framework has really marked my career. First as a lawyer working in data privacy laws uh, and then as an investigative reporter. I mean, that, <clears throat> that sounds really interesting to me. I remember when we spoke about it the first time, I thought this was really inspiring. And I think uh, everyone needs some sort of inspiration to get into where they want to be in life. I think, um, I mean, th there's also the Hackers Manifesto, right? Which, uh, <clears throat> which, a lot, which I think inspired a lot of us to sort of start trolling in code and playing with code and seeing what you can make code do, right? But um, is this also part of why you got into into like Intel and, and investigations as well? So I, I guess partly, but really what made me get into, um, I guess, open source investigations in general was the 2017 earthquake in Mexico City. It was um, September 19th, 2017. I will never forget that day. Um, I was in my office on a Zoom call, which I think was Skype back then or something. Zoom wasn't, maybe FaceTime. Um, and, you know, it's like if all of a sudden the loss of gravity suspended and everything was shaking around me in a really scary way. I remember rushing outside because that's what you do in Mexico. Um, I have since learned that in other parts of the world you don't run outside. <laughs> But Mexico City is actually built on a lake, on top of a lake. So the foundations are not very, the foundations of the city are not very solid, which is why the likelihood of buildings collapsing is actually higher than in other parts of the world. So you just rush outside. Um, and I remember like that was the first time that I thought, you know, I'm going to die. Like, like everything around me was literally collapsing. There was a construction building in front of me and people were falling off of it. It was like hugely traumatic. Yeah. And yeah, it was really, it was, it was really hardcore. Um, and I was in the famous Roma neighborhood. if you have watched the film um, and it kind of became ground zero for the earthquake. And I think it was right after the 2016 elections. So I think that was one of the first sort of like natural catastrophes that was also rife with disinformation and misinformation. Um, I remember my grandma sending me photos that were completely fake um, of like bridges collapsing or like bridges that were broken and um, WhatsApp became such a vital um, tool uh, for communicating because lines were down, electricity was down, the whole neighborhood was smelling like gas. Um, and me and a couple of friends got together and we actually started this crowdsourcing effort, uh, with over 500 volunteers to fact check information. Um, and we did it so well that we became the primary source of, uh, facts in the middle of the emergency, um, because there were still people who were trapped under the rubble and we had to get the resources to the places to be able to dig them out. And it had to be quickly because people cannot survive a lot of time under the rubble. So after, after that, it was a really tough 10 days of you know, not eating, not sleeping. But after that, I realized the power of harnessing social media for fact-checking purposes and fact-gathering purposes. 
So I quit my career as a lawyer. I used to work in um, data privacy at an NGO, at an international NGO. Um, applied to the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley and decided to, I didn't even know how, it was just an intuition, but I knew that that was the path that I wanted to take. From there, I met the Human Rights Center. Um, I currently work with them now. And they have this amazing space, the Human Rights Center um, Investigations Lab with over 100 students, 30 different languages, mostly women, mostly people of color, which is incredible in the OSINT space. And I just knew that I had found my tribe and I knew that I had found yeah. my jam. You know, I still remember feeling butterflies in my stomach um, with excitement when I learned how to geolocate, for example, right? Um, so, but it was that, it was a combination of knowing that I am data and that we're all data. So that very traumatic experience, that was definitely an inflection point in my career. Now that, that's amazing. So it, it kind of all came together in the end, didn't it? That's, uh, I mean, that itself was inspiring to me, but you said something really interesting. So you're, you're, you're with the, um, you're with, you're with the Berkeley, right? You're also with the Pan America. Uh, you're doing training, you're doing, you're also a journalist, essentially. Um, well, a reporter. And you also do these uh, amazing OSIN investigations. How do you balance all of that? How does it, <clears throat> what keeps you going? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, first of all, I love what I do. I remember being very bored when I was a lawyer. <laughs> Don't tell my former bosses. Uh, but I remember being very bored and just, you know, that sensation of boredom and how it slowly eats you alive. Um, and um, I've always been a cybersecurity and digital security instructor or teacher. I'm not technical, like I don't code, um, but I'm really good at OPSEC because I grew up as a Mexican woman and I was litigating, you know, for journalists who were then murdered and um, we live in a narco state. So um, I think risk was, uh, and digital risk was something inherent in growing up in Mexico um, and because of my cyber mentality. Um, that's something that I've always been interested in. And I especially focus on women and young women and how to help them uh, understand technology better and leverage technology better with their own bodies uh, in a respectful and egalitarian way. So when I graduated from the Graduate School of Journalism, because of my cybersecurity background, I started doing a lot of um, extremism research. Um, I was like, you know, this is going to be the thing for 2020. What is the alt-right doing? Um, and I was finding really good stories, but then I was having a hard time putting them together because I didn't have an editor. So eventually, uh, through this research and researching the Boogaloo Boys, um, I got to speak um, with, I got access to a Boogaloo boy who is accused of uh, killing two officers of the law here in California. His name is oh, Steven wow. Carrillo. Um, <clears throat> he uh, was in prison and I interviewed him from prison. I was the only journalist who interviewed him. Um, and when I got access to that, um, I went to David Barstow, who is the head of the investigative reporting program um, and the man with the most Pulitzers in the world, uh, Pulitzer Prizes for those who are not 
familiar um, are kind of like the Nobel Prize of journalism. Uh, and this man has four. <laughs> he worked for his entire career at the New York Times, um, something like 20 years. Um, and I remember going to him and he was telling me like, I have no budget to hire you. Like, you're incredible, but you know, we're in a small NGO adjacent to the journalism school. And I was like, I don't care. I have a great story and I need an editor. Um, so he adopted me. And uh, that was with that story, uh, which you can read in um, ProPublica. Um, and, and we also did a film called American Insurrection, sort of like telling the story of how the Capitol start, like how the Capitol riots came to be. Um, but that was a story that made me a reporter. And it was precisely my cybersecurity background that allowed me to be in the spaces on the internet that other people wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable in that habiting. But I knew that my security was really solid, so I could totally hang out in those chats and uh, those forums without a problem, or I could call those people with a burner number, right? Like just basic things like that, but that most reporters don't necessarily think through. Um, and it's always been kind of like an uphill battle for me to try to bridge the gap with uh, investigative reporting and try to bring in the, these things like cybersecurity, threat modeling, um, geolocation and chronolocation, Boolean searches. You know, it's not like it isn't even rocket science, but I think the generational and cultural divide is just really big. But that story, after talking to Steven Carrillo several times from prison, um, writing that story, putting that story together. That's the story that made me a journalist. And um, uh, and then eventually uh, Pan America has been asking me, I do consultancies with them for, uh, we train newsrooms in basic digital safety and protecting yourself against online harassment, um, which is something again, that as a Mexican woman, um, I've been through a lot. Um, and there are like, I think the bottom line is how do you do it? There are ways to be resilient and there are ways in which you can tackle these things and not burn out and be mindful about what you're doing. First is the love of the job. Second is the mission of journalism, which is essentially tied to democracy. Third is I adore the people that I work with. Um, I adore them all at the Human Rights Center and the investigative reporting program. They are all incredible human beings. I learn something new every day. Um, I work six days a week. I work a lot. I work all the time, but I do take Saturdays off. Saturdays are my day off. Um, I do a lot of yoga. I work out every day. So that's sort of like the balance between the cyborg um, and also trying to have embodied practices that connect me with myself to keep doing this job because it's a marathon. It's not a race. So we can't burn out in the middle of the way. No, absolutely. I, I think um, it, it seems that there's a lot of passion for what you're doing as well. I mean, not just with, with, with the Human Rights Watch, but also the journalism. I mean, it seems like you just built into this whole mentality of the cyborg as well, which is uh, which is crazy cool. So. Talking about uh, OPSEC and, and digital verification and all of that, has there been been anything crazy that you've gotten yourself in, let's say, intertwined in? Um, maybe something you can talk about, an interesting, an interesting story, perhaps. I mean, definitely interviewing someone who's accused of murdering two policemen uh, because of an extremist ideology. 
um, and being manipulated by him. You know, like in the interview, he was so flirty and he was so charming. And that was one of the craziest experiences I've ever had. <laughs> And when you're interviewing and you're like, why is this man so nice if he's accused of these horrible things? Um, but that's when the journalistic practice comes in and you step back and it's actually the context. And, you know, um, also this, uh, I don't know, what is it about people who are accused of doing horrible things? They're always charming, you know, <laughs> um, charming. Well, and A lot of them get a lot of uh, love letters and stuff as well, from what I've heard. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, I wonder how many this guy has gotten. He's still uh, he's still in prison. He's probably going to get a life sentence. Um, there's actually still death penalty here in California, um, mm -hmm. but um, he's he's not he's probably not going to get it. Um, so that was definitely one of the craziest experiences. Um, other crazy experiences, I guess, include um, I can't reveal too much of it, but we're doing an immigration story. And one of my favorite things about investigative reporting is how you start off really little and scratching the surface. And then as you pull and pull and pull, all of a sudden there's a monster behind it. You know? So it's just like, wow, like we never thought this was going to be here. Um, so that definitely keeps me on track and keeps me um, high on the work. Um, but the craziest for sure has been so far in my career, uh, interviewing Steven Carrillo multiple times from prison during COVID um, at a very particular and hard moment in the United States um, during 2020 and 2021. Um, that nothing will be good for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then during COVID, I had to like isolate for seven, 14 days afterwards. So, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a time when there was uh, these horrible fires in California that we were also monitoring. Um, so it just definitely felt like the world was going to end, you know, um, and it was, yeah, it was a very dark period. But I'm really thankful that I got the opportunity and also the, you know, the sublimation of writing. You know, um, I played this song on repeat, this Motorrad song on repeat mm -hmm. as I was writing this one piece. Um, and just how healing it is and how cathartic it is once you get the piece out. And once you sort of like all those emotions and all those, um, you know, I still remember his mugshot. Like I used to have nightmares about his mugshot. So, um, but yeah, nothing will beat that craziness of that particular experience. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I don't think um, <clears throat> people give reporters and investigative reporters or investigative journalists the respect that they deserve in, in the hell that you go through to do what you actually do. Um, I, I don't think people actually realize the amount of work and effort that goes into it, really. Um, but yeah, uh, what, what can I say? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, we were recently at the um, at an award ceremony with a bunch of other investigative journalists uh, in New York, and it's definitely like stories taking over your life. Um, and it was a really cool tribe feeling to it uh, of like we're all in it for the same thing, which mm -hmm. is hold power accountable in whatever way, shape or form, you know, 
Um, but it, it, it is definitely, it takes a lot of self-care to not break and not go crazy. So I appreciate you appreciating us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just the fact of the matter. I mean, um, when, when, when I was growing up, uh, back where I'm originally from, uh, it, it was wartime as well. And, and I've seen journalists who uncovered really, you know, compromising information, just they they're, they're gone off the map in a couple of weeks and that, and that's <clears throat> and that's kind of crazy to see as well and uh i i don't know i don't know about you but have you have you ever been in a situation where um your your investigations have got gone into some something intense or kind of worrisome uh in terms of your own personal safety um yeah yeah definitely i mean covering extremism was um, one of the examples, but um, in my career, I have gotten doxxed. Um, I have gotten, you know, rape and death threats um, because it's also like, I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color doing this work, um, you know, reporting in predominantly white supremacist spaces or denouncing machismo in Mexico. Um, and online harassment is always, like a social sanction for breaking gender norms, you know, because like, what are we, as, as a woman, what am I supposed to talk about on the internet? What am I allowed to talk about? Cooking, decoration, babies, fashion, you know? But as soon as you step out of those gender roles and you start discussing politics or sports or, um, you know, any other, I don't know, cars, like, I don't know, you know? Um, even OSINT, to be honest, like it's such a predominantly male space that um, sometimes even the backlash comes from that. Uh, just like getting, I don't know, um, like I'm not an arms aficionado, you know, like I can ID a couple, but I'm not interested either. I have other things to do. And I once got a weapon wrong uh, on Twitter and oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's like... Um, I got a lot of backlash for that. But I think the scariest moment to me was the worst has been getting rape threats. Um, um, and in Mexico, it's also really interesting because of how embedded it is with the narco. Um, you get like photos of AK-47s with a posted with your name and a rape threat, right? Oh, so, wow. yeah. So it's like very, it gets very intertwined. Um But the really cool thing and the, what I love about the work that I do with Pen America is that, like I said, like you learn strategies. I have I have had to learn strategies to not only survive that, but like rise above that and just really rise to the level where it you cannot let it affect you. Or if it does affect you, you learn how to recover quickly. Um, and if there's one thing in the bottom line for if anyone has ever gone through, uh, through anything of the sort, I think the bottom line is the only thing that saves you at that time is community. The only thing that will really get you out of the rabbit hole that you're in, uh, out of the shame, it feels super shameful. Um, it's paralyzing, you know, when you're like watching movies and there's like a tsunami coming and you're like, run, run. And you, you know, it's super paralyzing. Um, it makes you want to silence yourself and stop tweeting. 
Um, so there's like small little hacks, right? That you can do. Like I just tweet music when I'm getting horribly harassed. I just tweet music or I start responding to my trolls with like fluffy animals or like puppies or like cute gifts or like kittens, you know? Um, and it's just like, I think the point is not retaliating with abuse because that will only get you <clears throat> further into the hole. Uh, but changing the tone and reaching out to the people that you love and to, you know, my tribe, my community of investigative reporters or my community of feminist activists in Mexico or, um, you know, my, my Twitter followers. Hey, everyone, please help me report this troll. Um, but the bottom line is that even though I have been in those really challenging spaces i do think that there are ways to get out of that and having lived through that i'm really passionate about teaching other people and helping other people get out of that so that we can keep doing what we do best which is tell truth to power and keep speaking up and being as loud as we can that's that that's pretty cool so i mean twitter can be a bit of a um twitter can be a, a, a bit of a hostile space sometimes couldn't it and I think especially uh, uh, women and women in cyber, women in OSINT. I think uh, you said rightly, it's a, it's a very uh, male-dominated area. And I've I've been seeing um, a couple crazy things go down recently as well, where it's just completely unnecessary harassment. So so the question is here, right? Like, apart from just retaliating with fluffy animal mm -hmm. pictures and, and gifs of kittens um what about the mental health side of it mm. how do you deal with that well first of all therapy <laughs> i don't know how people are on this beat of investigative reporting and, and, and verifying war crimes without a therapist therapy for all especially if you are a man listening go to therapy Therapy is the best. I always tell my students, we're not going to make it on this beat unless we go to therapy. Shout out to my therapist. He's the absolute best. Um, and by therapy, I mean like a space, a weekly space where I can just talk about how I feel and unpack my emotions. I think that's um, essential to survival. Um, and like I said, like, it's not, uh, uh, even though I am a cyborg, I really, 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 try to connect with my body as much as possible. So eating well, drinking a lot of water, yoga, meditation. I work out every day, like rain or shine every day. I'm moving my body and just taking, even if it's just 30 minutes of like conscious embodiment outside of the cyber to just feel myself and be with myself and see how I feel. Um, one little hack that I love uh, for my mental health is um, I sleep with my phone in the bathroom so the worst is to wake up and like scroll and mm -hmm. first thing in the morning because it gets your your nervous system into a place of urgency right up work mm -hmm. you know um i have an, an analog alarm clock um and i wake up with that and i just for you know i make coffee or tea and then sit with myself think about my dreams my emotions and then i turn my phone on and that's been such a like little hack that really has helped me. Um, it's all about how we manage our nervous system and how we manage uh, the adrenaline highs and the crashes that go right after. Um, and 
I mean, last but not least, uh, and I think I've said it, but that's the the hardcore bottom line is the community. I love and adore the people that I work with. I, I just like, I have so much love for them. And of course my family and my friends, but no one gets it like your colleagues, you know? No one gets it like, that's why I call them my tribe. Um, and we just hold each other uh, during these hard times and we have a lot of trust and a lot of care for each other. So um, I feel very blessed and very lucky to um, be working in a space. And we're also a lot of women. We're mostly women, except for David Barstow, we're only women. <laughs> so that's also, um, you know, in this very gendered, uh, bro-y male space, uh, it just feels like a true delight to be able to work with powerful, amazing, smart, OSINT women and also teach others, right? Because part of the investigative reporting work that I do, um, I managed to, um, I manage two reporting teams of 10 students each, a combination of computer scientists, law school students and journalists and students all at the grad school level. And we, it's sort of like a teaching hospital. So we work on two investigative stories a year, only two a year. Um, and I manage them and I'm the supervising reporter and sort of like their, their um, immediate editor. Um, we're currently working with the Associated Press and the Center for Investigative Journalism uh, on um, anti-birth control disinformation, for which Maltigo has oh, yeah. been not only um, very useful, but also very fun. <laughs> um, I can't wait to show you the the actual ones we published, uh, the actual, like how all, all Maltigo actually looks like. Um, you would never imagine sort of like the things that come up and the connections that we're starting to make. And then the other one is about the infrastructure of immigration. So essentially how um, coyotes and travel agencies and airlines connect with each other to recruit migrants and honestly, like just get so much money out of them uh, so that they can make their trip north. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like all things network. And uh, I so I managed these two uh, reporting uh, stories and the students on it. And we teach the students not only how to report, but how to like OSINT as well, right? It's inherently OSINT stories. Um, and, you know, we're like 17 women and one guy. Yeah. <laughs> My students are, uh, I have 18 and there are 17 women and one guy. Uh, this amazing Colombian lawyer, shout out to the only guy in our classroom. And it's not like we don't take boys, you know, like, of course not. Like, let, let, let everyone can enroll in our class. But I do think that because we're so many women in leadership, um, it's also been really cool how it's inspiring other young women to follow these path, this path, even though traditionally one would think, oh, this is not a woman's path, right? Or, oh, no, mm -hmm. this is not. This is tech is not for tech is not for me. Tech is tech is for other type of people who don't look like me. Um, so that's been really cool and really inspiring to be able to. Um, yeah, uh, sort of like leave a seed of my formation and, and the knowledge that we have built together. And it's also paying it forward for other amazing women who have mentored me and taught me throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Um, but but speaking about uh, some of your achievements, right? I think um, the American insurrection, the the stories on um, Kuyakan, 
you actually won a uh, Teen Polk Award as well for this, right? On this film? Yeah, American Insurrection. What was that like? Um, you know, getting everyone together and, and getting this kind of... Um, is, is it fair to call it a documentary or is it fair to call it a, um, a film? Yeah, documentary, documentary film. Um, you know, it's very rewarding to be recognized for your work, especially, you know, being young and, and you know, getting started. Um, it's not like I have 20 years doing this. Um, it was really incredible to be in the room full of people who were also investigative reporting, reporters and who were going through the same hardships that we all go through, like sacrificing so many personal things for the story and uh, for the passion of telling the story. Um, it was amazing to work with AC Thompson uh, Rick and Rick Rowley. Um, Rick Rowley was the director and AC Thompson is the correspondent. Um, C. Thompson has been covering extremism for like 20 years. Um, and it was just the most amazing learning experiences I've had to be able to film with him and, um, and, and just tag along and talk about how hard it is, how hard it is to cover this beat and how, you know, he's been targeted by me, him and his family have been actively targeted by neo-Nazis and, um yeah and how little support we got from newsrooms right um how little newsrooms know how to navigate um online harassment or uh doxing or you know um just cyber attacks in general um so there was definitely a lot of camaraderie um but in the end I don't know. I mean, to be completely honest, I kind of can't shake off the weird feeling of like, wait, this is not supposed to be about us. You know, <laughs> this is supposed to be about the story. So it was like, okay, cool. Great. We have a polk. Um, I'll wear that feather on my cap happily, but um, I'm more interested in the work itself and on the actual stories that I'm working on right now. And it also felt like such a dark story um, and interviewing Steven Carrillo and the, this extremist accused of killing two cops. Um, I was really close to his girlfriend, the source. So when I published, I kind of thought it would be over, but with the with Polk, it just seemed like I had to open the kind of forms again. <laughs> so it was definitely, to be to completely honest, it was um, bittersweet but mostly very rewarding to be recognized and uh, be able to see my colleagues again. Um, yeah. It sounds like you did a lot of investigating, right? And this is where I'm going to pivot. Um, I know you mentioned Maltego and I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Maltego geek, uh, <laughs> not just because of the brand or anything, but I, I really love, I, I love the tool and, and what you can do with it. The amount of, um, just the array of looking at different different data and putting it all together. But what are the three, let's say the top three tools that you, you can do without? Hunchly, shout out to Justin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could not live, I could have not been able to publish or fact check any of the Carrillo story if it weren't for Hunchly. Because especially in the extremism space, I mean, a lot of these posts and web pages get taken down by extremists themselves or um, social media companies. So um, we cannot live without Hunchly. Hunchly is just like my favorite tool. 
Um, and then um, I use a lot of Invid. Um, uh, Invid, this, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, this um, plugin to sort of like reverse image search or yeah. cut a video into screenshots for reverse image searching. And honestly, finally, since we work across all types of languages, um, not only on extremism, but disinformation or the immigration story that we're working on right now, the Google Translate um, desktop plugin. Okay. Sorry, yeah. not desktop, um, sort of like browser plugin. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing because you just, with one button, translate this page and the Russian web page is all of a sudden in English, right? So I think those would be my top three. Um, Maltigo comes in uh, when we're doing more uh, complex analysis um, in itself. Uh, we've been also using a lot of Aleph, um, mm -hmm. um, which has been really fun to integrate with all Maltigo experience. But definitely my top three are um, Google Translate, Envid, and Hunchly. And, you know, it's not like, it depends also on the story that I'm working on, right? Like we have a saying, my colleague Stephanie Kraft, a total, I call her the OSINT queen. Um, she's the director of the Human Rights uh, Investigations Lab. We have this saying, let the tools follow the story and not the story follow the tools. Right. Like let your research lead you to, OK, it's like, which hat do I have to wear right now? So like right now I'm doing a lot of flight tracking because the story needs it. But when I started, I didn't know I needed flight tracking. Right. Um, and maybe some other story, you know, and we're, um, we're working across different languages. So Google Translate has been really helpful. Hunchly, I think, is the one thing that always stays across investigations. Um, but that's our, our sort of like our bottom line is let the story drive the tools and not the tools drive the story. So it, it will very much depend on the story and the research that we're doing. Yeah, no, actually, you know, I, I really couldn't agree more with you because um, this is something that we see happening quite often. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of investigators will throw their whole toolkit at a problem, hoping to have a solution that kind of rises to the top, but it doesn't. I think being specific about what you're what you're aiming for, um, a specific kind of result that you're aiming for, is probably more time saving and less stressful than throwing the whole kitchen sink at, at a problem and, and expecting some sort of uh, <clears throat> some sort of solution to suddenly show up out of the blue, right? Yeah, it's kind of like people who want to save poverty with a nap. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, do you understand poverty? Also poverty where? And also why do you want to solve it? You know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I think it's very easy in the OSINT space to sort of like get into this techno solutionist mindset. Um, but that's where I really appreciate my editor, David uh, Barstow. He's um, recently, we were looking at all these flight tracking data and we were like, Stephanie and I were merging databases and like throwing all our kitchen sink at it. And then David was like, have you actually looked at the data with your own eyes? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, yeah, have you looked at the data to see if you can pick up patterns with your eyes? Yep. And I was like, oh my God. So I looked at the data with my eyes and it was so obvious. It took me an hour to solve something that we had been trying to merge two databases <laughs> and like with a unique flight tracking identifier, which was hard to find. And, you know, it's just like, 
Um, but it was just a really good reminder of this. Don't throw your whole kitchen sink at it. Uh, use your brain, right? Like just use yep. your eyes. And that's yep. usually the uh, the low tech solution ends up being the most efficient one uh, most of the time. Absolutely. I mean, the words right out of my mouth, right out of my mouth there. So I have an interesting question for you. We both spoke about inspiration. So um, I was, um, as I said, I was I was inspired by the Hackers Manifesto and and, and some stories about hackers and and um, things people would do to get into networks, do some crazy things. Uh, not that I've attempted any of that, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and and you with the with the cyborg manifesto. If there's three things you could do or say right now to to inspire um, the listeners out there, or three pieces of advice that you think would be uh, you know somewhat inspirational or something that you would say as 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 general advice, what would that be? Mm, that's a good question. So for O-Centers, what would it be? I guess one that I always tell my students is read. Read and devour anything you can about the topic that you're investigating. Um, I feel like so many of the creative investigative processes come from devouring all the books that I can on the topic. Um, so I think reading is definitely um, one of them. Um, a second one would be embodiment practices. Uh, so anything that makes you feel connected with your body, if that's cooking or stretching or, um, you know, anything that is off screens. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess the third one would be How do we build better community, like building better community circles and um, being less isolated? It can be very isolating work, even though there are strong online communities. Um, but if there's any way to get involved with um, just more marginalized sectors or, um, you know, teach someone who doesn't know how to do it that lives in your city. Um, I think those three things are the most fulfilling for me. I, li I like that approach. I think a lot of what you've said um, during this uh, during this conversation has had a lot to do with um, embodiment, mental health, taking care of yourself. And um, I think a lot of us as, as professionals, we, we end up dedicating a lot of hours, a lot of, um, a lot of time of our lives, right, to, to what we do. Um, so I think, it's, I think it is important. I think it's amazing that um, this is recognized. I think a lot of us need to actually appreciate this and, and perhaps stretch a little bit, go outside for a walk. I was reading recently that uh, just spending 20 minutes a day out in, out in sunshine or in, in, in a greener environment, helps you alleviate your stresses and you know gives you a better mindset uh, allows you to reset and focus um it's it's something that now that we work at home as well uh, not many people take advantage of it now that they can right yeah and i think it's also you know in the very urban environments that we work in it's also harder and harder to get access to those spaces but 
it's in the end it's a marathon not a race and we need to survive in it we can't burn out and we can't quit so in the end that's what will make you just last longer and do your work better and it's where i get all my inspiration from it's a great mindset to have um yeah i mean i, I think um uh, i think it's been a very interesting uh definitely a very interesting conversation in in terms of the whole investigative topic journalism and and, and the embodiment of of uh self-care and all of that uh are you working any on on any passion projects at the moment no <laughs> <laughs> you just stretch too thin though aren't you really yeah i mean uh right now it's just a really busy time um i got some time off during the summers um where i go back to mexico so that's really nice uh but right now we're like in the thick of publishing and um yeah it's just um i read a lot i read a lot of fiction just to like sort of like get a break from this world um but right now passion projects not really it's it's mostly a lot of work and a lot of working out so that's that's what i'm mainly focused on and i love Amazing. gardening i love gardening i garden a lot. okay yeah i do garden every day i have some weeds um right now that have taken over my um planters so um yeah that's that's i guess that's one of my passions <laughs> always latent Amazing. Um Gisela, it's been an honor having you having you with us. Um I, I really did enjoy the conversation. I think um you know don't make yourself scarce. Uh if there's anything that uh, anything that Maltego can do to inspire you or anywhere anywhere where we can see some um, collaborative inspiration it would be amazing to see a path forward as well. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I'm really happy to be part of this Multigo community. I can't wait to learn more from you all and um I'm really looking forward to all the amazing things that we can do together. Cool. Amazing. Gisela, thank you very much again. Um stay safe wherever you are and uh <laughs> see you on the flip side. Yeah, thank you so much, Bradley. It was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for everyone for listening. <laughs>